Welcome to Wholeness and Holiness Podcast. Here we will deepen your understanding of human and spiritual integration so you can live the life of peace and fulfillment God has for you. I'm your host, Margaret Vasquez. I hold a degree in theology and am a licensed professional clinical counselor and certified trauma therapist. Join me weekly for practical applications of the spiritual life. No part of this audio is to be used as mental health treatment or clinical advice. Please see a licensed mental health professional for personal consultation. Well, today it's my honor to introduce to you Margaret Vasquez. And isn't it amazing how people come into your your radar or you know someone tells you about somebody and you just have to meet this person. Well, Father David Tickerhoof, who was one of our past speakers, and he was very much a part of Franciscan University at the beginning of its renewal and the charismatic renewal, he kept telling me, Felice, you know, uh, you need to you know, meet Margaret Vasquez. I'm like, Father, she's in Ohio and I'm in Florida. And oh, no, 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 you need to, did you read her book? She has a book on Amazon. So, you know, I, he talked to me again, did you get her book? No. Next thing I opened my mail, Father sent me her book. <laughs> so then I said, I better read this book because he's going to call me and ask me if I read the book. And then she's got another book. Did you read that? No, I'm going to just send it to you. So he sent me her second book. And I was, like, really impressed. And, um, and so I got with Margaret and, you know, was, again, just blown away. So I um, am sure you're going to be, because I didn't even know what her testimony entailed until, um, you know, she gave it to me. And it is going to just amaze you. So, Margaret, Vasquez, all of you. We're just going to lift you up. We just praise you and we thank you, my God, and we thank you for Margaret. We thank you for the blessing of bringing her here to us, my God. We just ask that you open... Um, her heart and give her the words that she needs to use, whether they're on, um, you know, what she was going to say or not, Lord. And then we just ask that you open our hearts to hear and to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> This is the first time I've actually um, shared my testimony. And when Felice had asked me if I would come speak, I said, sure. And I'd never been to a Magnificat breakfast. And so I thought she wanted me to talk about trauma or healing or one of the things I always talk about. So I kept emailing and saying, what do you want me to talk about? What do you want me to talk about? And finally she responded, no, we want you to give you your testimony. And so I told her what was in here and uh, said, how much do you want me to censor? <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah. so. So kind of buckle up, I guess that's what that means. But, but really this is, um, I mean, we sing it in Good, Good Father, and it, it really is our identity. It's about our identity in him, I guess, would be um, so core to this, and that's something that Satan so much wants to chip away at. But it's essential, you know. I, this is on off script already. So in the, um, in the garden, right, that's the first thing that Satan gets them to question, Right? Did God really say, you can't eat from that tree? Because he knows that that would be really, really good for you if you ate from that tree, right? So he gets us to question God's goodness. And the, these were all the readings last week, right? And then um, the temptation in the desert, then he, he's questioning Jesus' identity in those first, the first two of the temptations. If you're the son of God, if you were the son of God, that's how the first two temptations go. So he gets us to question God's goodness, and then he gets us to question who we are to who who God is to us and who we are to him that relationship and those when he can shake that foundation anything is possible in a really bad way but God still has the victory when we cling to that identity and he restores our identity in him so so um, my soul proclaims the greatness of the lord my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant these words of our Blessed Mother from the first chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, from her Magnificat, are the most fitting for me to begin with today. 
not just because we're at a Magnificat event, but because it's my pleasure to have this opportunity to share my testimony to God's hand on me, his lowly servant. So many times I've come away from speaking, teaching, providing counseling, and in response to to the positive feedback, I've so wished I could stop people and tell them what I'll share with you today, which is fundamentally that if there's any giftedness or resulting freedom people have experienced through me, it's all a result of God doing great things for me. And the reason that that means so much to me is because that same all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, ever-present God is always available, always waiting for each of us, even in the thickest darkness. So I grew up on the coast of South Georgia. I was the second oldest and only girl of four kids. I was spiritually oriented as far back as I can recall, and that didn't seem exceptional to me. I thought that was normal. I'd only been me, still have only ever been me, so I didn't know any way to know what, you know, how others were thinking or experiencing the world. So just to give you an idea of what I mean, I remember being about three years old, um, and the way I know I was three is that I started kindergarten at four, And in my family, if you were school age, you were expected to stand, sit, and kneel at the designated times in Mass, right? So I know I must have been three at the oldest um, because I was was crawling around in the kneelers. Um, And it was at the Hosanna during Mass one Sunday, and I remember hearing the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and thinking, okay, this is really easy. That's what we need to do, go in the name of the Lord, because then we'll be blessed. So later, I remember seeing the the television movie, Jesus of Nazareth. It was kind of like the chosen for when I was a kid, right? (laughs) And I was really struck by the crucifixion. And I remember taking the crucifixes off the walls in our house and and laying them down flat because it seemed like it would somehow hurt less if it wasn't pulling on the nails. (laughs) Aww. (laughs) And so... My heart was particularly empathetic towards the Lord's sufferings in a way that I know was his gift, and in retrospect, it was profoundly incongruent with what was going on in in my home and in my family. The reason I can share all those stories is is because, like, I I know that it was the Lord, you know. It was about him and his gift. It wasn't about, about me. I was just kind of a tomboy, so it says a lot more about who he is. It particularly shows how good and powerful he is, because it would have, been, would have made far more sense if I had grown hardened and calloused and angry. I'm a cradle Catholic, but don't take that to mean faith was consistently taught or modeled or encouraged. While we were sent to Catholic school and Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, there was a great deal of ongoing physical, emotional, and verbal abuse in our home. I was made to be responsible for my younger brothers and, quite frankly, emotionally responsible for my parents and was rarely allowed to go anywhere with friends and didn't want to have friends over because of the degree of chaos in the house. It was really embarrassing. I was a very well-behaved child, but nothing I ever did seemed to be good enough. And if there was any mention of God, it was in a very punitive way. The God that I was taught about at home was very angry, and it was all my fault. And Our Lady was just as upset with me. Even as an adult, I'd see Michelangelo's Pieta and feel immediately guilty, as though Mary was mad at me for killing her son. Yet somehow in the midst of that climate, there remained a very pure belief in God's love that I can explain in no other way than that the Lord himself sovereignly gave and protected that gift. It was like this pocket of of grace, just gift, pure and simple, that remained untainted. Nighttime was especially difficult for me as a child because the anxiety of the abuse and constant fighting and yelling from and between my parents would really get to me. I'd have a really difficult time breathing because of the sense of panic. And um, and we're going to do show and tell. So we had a little hard plastic sacred heart that glowed in the dark. It was like this one, except for, um, I ordered this on eBay just a couple of years ago when I found it. I was like, 
I was trembling. I like saw it on eBay, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, it's like you know, a dollar fifty or something, and I'm like, I have to have that, right? So like, mine was different because I had a burn spot on the back from me holding it on the lamp for too long. So so you can because I wanted it to stay bright for as long as possible. And then I'd run back to my bed and get under the covers and just look at it and think about Jesus and long to feel his presence. It was my earliest experience of mental prayer, though I had no idea what that was or that prayer even existed outside of mass or grace before Mm -hmm. meals. One day when I was about six years old, I was at the beach and the sand and sea and sky seemed to go on forever. And I had a profound sense of that being like the Lord, enormous and enveloping me. And and for the first time, feeling very small felt safe. And like a good thing, because he felt very, very big and good. Throughout my childhood, there was a constant contrast of the harshness around me and the Lord like tenderizing my heart towards his love and sufferings. And the disconnect between my parents in their relationship with each other and in relationship to us kids was juxtaposed to a deep longing for intimacy with him. Though I had no teaching or experience to tell me that was possible or even something people thought about. So in the midst of these competing worlds grew up within me a deep love for the Eucharist. I was a painfully shy child and cried every day before school until about fifth grade. I was really scared of people because of what, what I'd seen and experienced at home, and I thought it was just a matter of time before others would treat me in the same way. So then you fast forward to like seventh and eighth grade, and I had this amazing religion teacher. She, she was in the charismatic renewal, but I didn't have any exposure to the renewal, so I didn't know what that meant. I just knew there was something like very different about her. It was all real for her. A lot of the other teachers, God love them, but when it was time for religion class, they would take us out to play kickball because they really didn't have any idea what to do with us. But for her, it was like, this is the real subject. This is the one that matters, you know. So she would regularly supply me with spiritual reading and cassette tapes from Franciscan University's summer conferences. And she would slip them to me after class with a note of encouragement, and I'd return them with a letter. So in this way, she provided what I now understand as spiritual direction. Not only did it teach me the faith, but it helped me to feel less alone, to know there were others for whom God's love and a personal and intimate relationship with him was the most important thing, and it was all very real, and I wasn't crazy. These people, the ones giving the talks, the saints I had read about, they became my silent and invisible support group, right? Which was like probably better with as shy as I was. It's better that my support group be shy and invisible, or quiet and invisible. I continued to stay in touch with Mrs. Shuttle even after leaving the little Catholic elementary school and going to the local public high school. On one occasion, she invited me to join her after school in the church to pray. And it was the first time I really ever recall going into a church when there wasn't an event or a liturgy taking place. It was so still and peaceful, and the sense of the Lord's presence in the Eucharist was palpable. It felt like he filled that huge building. Again, he felt very big, and I felt very small, and that felt like a very good thing. I recall it being so intense that my my heart felt like it was pounding in my chest. You know, you can hear it in your ears, right? In that moment, I knew the Eucharist was Jesus. Over one extended holiday break from school, I I think I was either a sophomore or a junior that year, I had ridden my bike to morning mass throughout that week, unbeknownst to my parents. Somehow, intuitively, I knew to hide the fact that I was attending mass each morning, While it made no logical sense to me that I would need to hide that fact, my gut told me that it wasn't okay to talk about in my family. On the third or fourth day of attending morning mass, I was riding my bike back into our driveway, and my mother met me on the front step and asked me where I'd been. 
and I kind of scrambled in my thoughts as to how to respond and reasoned that Mass is good and we're taking a Mass on holy days and I didn't do anything wrong, but still I didn't want to offer more information than was required of me. So I simply said that I'd gone for a ride, which is pretty obvious since I'm standing there holding my bicycle. So she pressed me for where I'd been and I told her I'd gone to Mass. And she looked at me with disdain and said, you think you're so much holier than everybody else. Now, I was, I was really stunned because I didn't attribute the fact that I loved Mass to being about me. And I went because I wanted to experience God's presence. I certainly didn't see it as a sign of holiness. I was much more interested in people thinking I was cool than them thinking I was holy. That was not even on my radar. So the message I was sent was that faith is important, but was for Sundays and for church. It was not a part of life, and acting as such and having any real devotion was completely unacceptable, audacious, offensive, and would make others feel bad about themselves. During my high school years, I began to self-medicate the pain and confusion with binge drinking and promiscuity. I had mentioned promiscuity to a priest in confession, and he told me that was normal and not to be a prude. So it added to the message that good is bad and bad is good that I was receiving at home. One day my father was giving me a ride, and it was just he and I in the car. As we pulled into our driveway, I asked him to wait before getting out of the car, and I just told him I couldn't take it anymore, particularly the abuse from my mother, and that I was afraid I was going to either kill myself or kill her. He said, you girls just need to learn to get along, and got out of the car and went inside. So the next morning, I took a suicide note to my youth minister, and she contacted the family of a friend of mine I'd been in school with since fifth grade. At that point, I was a senior in high school. They helped me run away from home, and that was in April, April of my senior year. I ended up becoming an emancipated minor, so I couldn't be forced to return to my parents. I refused communication from my parents and insisted that I would only return if we could all go for family counseling together. <laughs> it's kind of a different teenager. Right? They finally consented, but after only one appointment, my mother refused to continue with sessions. So it was a time of turmoil and pain. And during that time, I was abused by a priest who had been laicized, who preyed upon my vulnerability. Because I'd been so painfully shy throughout my childhood, I'd forced myself to join the debate team. I reasoned that people are everywhere. I'd notice this pattern. See, I was a really quick kid. I was like, wait, there's people everywhere. <laughs> if I didn't become more comfortable, with speaking, it was going to be a really difficult life. As a result of that experience, I had actually decided that I liked public speaking and I wanted to become an attorney. It was, it was not wholly an anointed reasoning, though. It was, I really liked decimating people in cross-examination, if the truth be known. So, so there's nothing wholly an anointed about that. But, but it was still my plan, nonetheless, was to attend Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and study law. But the chaos of running away had completely sidetracked me from making college plans. It was only being pressed by the family I'd been living with to get a job or to go to college that woke me up to making a choice. At that point, Atlanta seemed much too close to coastal Georgia. Throughout high school, I had received, on occasion, information from then the University of, of Steubenville. I assumed that my religion teacher, Mrs. Shuttle, must have put me on a mailing list. I was much happier about the distance between Steubenville, Ohio, and coastal Georgia. I learned that the University of Steubenville had a larger theology program than did Catholic University, and the idea of studying theology was very attractive to me, so I applied. Within two weeks, my application for admission was accepted, my fin financial aid was worked out, and I was on a plane. I arrived at the university never having visited a college or anywhere north of North Georgia, 
At that time, I soon learned Franciscan University was a hub of charismatic renewal in the church. I'd never had any exposure to the charismatic renewal, charismatic prayer, and was poorly catechized. To say I had a great deal of adjustment to go through is a huge understatement. I felt as though I had boarded a plane and landed on another planet. <laughs> Nothing was familiar, not the terrain of Ohio, the cold weather, the smell of the steel mills back in the late 80s, or the style of worship. I was surrounded by strangers fresh out of an abusive environment and could not have felt more overwhelmed and out of place. The only thing that was familiar to me were my ways of coping through promiscuity and binge drinking and my desire for God. I was longing for connection and didn't realize it. I had read something from the university about the household system. So for those of you who don't know, Father Michael Scanlon, whose leadership saved a failing college of Steubenville and built it into the Franciscan University it is today, had begun something called households. Um, the school had been listed as one of the top party schools in Playboy magazine. <laughs> so this was at a time when the students were lost and longing and not at the school because of its theology program. Um, and he had them form systems of support called households. They're essentially like fraternities or sororities, but with commitments to devotions and mutual support rather than hazing and partying. At the time, it all sounded way too touchy-feely for me, and I vowed never to join one. A vow I broke within four days at the university. <laughs> it was the love and support of my household sisters, combined with intramural sports, that the Lord used to get me through the adjustment period. Through the teaching, pre preaching, and pastoring of the Franciscan friars, the support of my household sisters, and the positive peer pressure I let go of binge drinking and impure relationships. After my sophomore year, my spiritual inclination and desire for intimacy with the Lord led me to enter the convent to become a religious sister at 19. So I'll stop here and insert this like, story I was not going to tell. But so a good friend of mine, her name's Kelly Herman, she ended up, she had just finished at Franciscan and was still there as athletic director and ended up coaching women's basketball, men's, or I'm sorry, women's basketball and then later women's volleyball. When she first met me, I had arrived at the university. My head was like shaved on one side and long on the other. And I had a t-shirt that said, sold my soul to rock and roll. And, uh, and she, she met me and she would always, she would always tell me how she was scared of me when she first met me, which is, which is saying something because Kelly's like 5'10 or 5'11, like very athletic build. So. She, so I took her out to, we'd become friends, and over those two years, my freshman year and sophomore year, so I'd taken her out to dinner to tell her that I was entering religious life, and um, she, she goes, you know, when I first met you, she's like, you were really scary. We become friends, and two years later, you're going in the convent. I did a hell of a job. <laughs> So the Lord used Franciscan University in my life in a profound way. Looking back, it seem, seems like I was like a little kitten that the Lord picked up by the back of the neck and put there. Shortly before Mrs. Shuttle died a few years ago, she asked me how I had ended up going from South Georgia to Franciscan University. I said, well, you put me on a mailing list with their admissions office, and they had sent me material along and along. And she said, I never put you on a mailing list. The Lord works in mysterious ways, and sometimes that's through mailing lists. <laughs> One Sunday when I was 20 years old, Father David Tickerhoof, who Felice had mentioned, who now co-hosts my podcast, Wholeness and Holiness, was giving a homily on Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I don't really recall like anything he said, but I distinctly remember that my heart felt like it was going to pound out of my chest. And it felt like the Holy Spirit, right? Like if he's a dove, it felt like he was flapping wildly and there were feathers everywhere. <laughs> I was trying to kind of like casually like glance up and down the pew to see, you know, if others were feeling what I was feeling, but everyone looked rather calm and unaffected. 
So later that evening, I had gone, now this is all when I was in the convent, right? I'd gone to a prayer meeting and thought for sure we would end up praying with each other for baptism in fire. We just had to. I had been longing for that all day since the homily that morning, but fearful that might not happen, and being proactive, right? <laughs> I, um, I asked one of my, my sisters to pray with me. We'd both just come out of the, the restroom in the school gym where the meeting was being held. When I, when I asked her to pray with me for baptism in fire, she said, I don't even know what it is. I thought that was a curious response. I said, you don't have to know what it is. God knows what it is. I just asked you to pray with me. She just barely began to raise her hand in prayer and barely spoke the first syllable of the Lord's name, right? So it was like, gee. And I was so overwhelmed by the presence of God. I was knocked straight back onto the hardwood floor without my knees buckling, with no one there to catch me. I have no idea how long I was down there. It was so long, my sister just left me lying there on the locker room floor <laughs> with no one around me, which had, had to be a curious sight, right? A sister lying in full habit, totally out of it, on the locker room floor with no one around. So if anyone's hearing this testimony and you were walking by at the time, now you know what was going on. <laughs> While I was on the floor, overcome by the power, presence, and love of God, I saw what I understood to be the Lord, but he was all light. And what seemed to be his hand, which was also all light, like, it was like he pinched off some of the fire in his heart. And I had a vision of him placing that in my heart. And for the next three days, I could barely function. I felt like I was drowning in God. It was as though everything about the experience of this world was far in the background, and an intense sense of him was all foreground. It was consuming, overwhelming, and unrelenting. I could barely function in even mundane tasks. At mealtime on the second day, I suddenly heard, Sister Margaret Mary, Sister Margaret Mary, and I sort of, you know, kind of like came out of it and looked up and down the table, all my sisters were completely finished eating and looking at me. I was motionless and my food, my plate was piled with food, untouched. I couldn't even focus enough to eat. So if you know me, that, that's an act of God. <laughs> On the third day, I prayed something like, Lord, if this is how I'm supposed to die, I am totally fine with that, but I can't handle any more of this. You're much bigger than me and you're gonna kill me if you don't back off. <laughs> Just being honest. The sense of his presence gently lifted, but that experience has never left. It made a profound impression on me. Belief in God was no longer a matter of faith. I knew that he was real and that his presence and love is so totally other and makes everything we see as being so important and consequential in this life fade to nothing. Not only did nothing else matter, it was hard to even be aware of anything else. Yeah, this part's tough. So I loved religious life. Um, the spirituality, sharing a common vision and mission with others, having a sense of belonging. They were deeply satisfying and dearly important to me. <clears throat> However, I was dismissed at, at 23 after having taken a stand against the cover-up of abuses that I and others had suffered within the convent walls. It felt like being thrown away by my spiritual family and divorced by God. It broke something deep in me. The pain was so great that I felt like I would die. I asked the Lord what I was supposed to do with that terrible pain, and immediately he gave me Isaiah 53.10. If he gives his life as an offering for sin, he will see his descendants in a long life, and the will of the Lord will be accomplished through him. So when that breathtaking pain would surface, I'd offer it to the Lord for him to bring that religious community to become all they're supposed to be and for the renewal of religious life. It didn't take away the pain, and there were many things left to work through, but it gave the pain purpose, a way to focus it and not be overcome by it. While in the convent, many confounding health issues had begun because of all the 
stress from all the abuse. Shortly after being back out on my own, I was diagnosed with acromegaly, which is a disease caused by an overproduction of human growth hormone. It's a, a rare disease, and I had a rare form of the rare disease. The endocrinologist called me after seeing the results of an MRI of my brain and told me there was nothing she could do for me. That sounds really bad, doesn't it? She's yeah. all... I do have a brain. That was confirmed. But there was still nothing she could do for the acromegaly. Okay. I lay in bed and think about death. To me, dying and going to be with the Lord sounded like a wonderful thing and the biggest adventure I could imagine. But from the time I was little and had heard of the martyrs, I always had a strong desire to die that way. I remember being very young and thinking that if there was no way out, we're not, we're not getting out of this alive, right? Then being martyred sounded like the most purposeful way to go. Now, I was driving one day. Ironically, I was going to the mall. Not sure what I thought I needed from the mall if I was dying. But anyway, I was driving along and talking to the Lord. Lord, I'm totally okay with dying, but I never saw it being like this. The Lord interrupted my prayer. <laughs> with, did you get prayer from the person I told you to get prayer from? I had had a recurring sense that I was supposed to ask a particular priest on campus to pray with me, but I, I didn't know him or find him to be particularly approachable, so it kind of ignored that prompting. So I began to make excuses to the Lord. He's always busy, and I don't know where to find him. And again, the Lord spoke very clearly Go to campus right now. He's coming out of the chapel. <laughs> so I sat motionless in my car, staring at the clock, my blinker, on to, to go that way to the mall. And looking at the clock, and there is nothing going on on campus in the chapel at this time of day, that this must be all in my own mind. Though it seemed like this must have been all my own generated thoughts, and not really the Lord speaking, curiosity got the best of me. I reasoned that I could wonder for the rest of my very short life if that was actually the Lord, or I could go to campus and find out. So I headed up to campus, which was only about half a mile from where I was. I pulled into the parking lot behind the chapel, and it was a mild spring day, and everything was still, of course, because nothing was going on in the chapel. And no one would be there, I thought. I made my way to the big front doors and reached out for the handle, thinking, see, this was all in my And before my hand touched the handle, the door opened in front of me, and the priest the Lord had sent me to for prayer stepped out in front of me. <clears throat> I, I kind of stammered. I was like, uh, I, <clears throat> I think I, think I was supposed to ask you to pray with me. <laughs> he did, and all the symptoms of acromegaly went into remission and stayed in remission until about a year ago. Um, at that point, Father David, again, Father David took her, celebrated the sacrament of the anointing of the sick with me, and the symptoms again went into remission. With acromegaly being a growth disorder, my feet had suddenly grown from nine and a half to 11. After the anointing of the sick, they shrank back down to nine and a half. <laughs> I wish you could do that with other areas of... <laughs> There was a long period of recovery from the many years of abuse. I didn't understand what I'd been through was trauma, and at that time, trauma wasn't a word that was even used by counselors. It was a word reserved for broken bones and head injuries because the mental health field really didn't begin to make strides in understanding the effects of such experiences. It's only now beginning to see trauma as the root of many problems rather than focusing on symptoms. I was in terrible psychological pain and was unable to hold down a job and yet didn't want to receive government assistance, so I went back to school because studying had always been easy. Because, and only because, it was the field of study that held attraction for me, I enrolled in the Master's in Counseling program at Franciscan. I had no desire to become a therapist because I really didn't believe it worked. I'd been in counseling at that point for for about 17 years. 
I was struggling with deep depression and intense anxiety that culminated in 18 months of being imminently suicidal before I finally received relief through a, at that point, two-week intensive program of trauma therapy, much like the one-week one I practice these days. There was a night and day difference. After 17 years of depression, anxiety, confusion, mind and soul numbing pain, misdiagnosis, hospitalizations, and effective medications and counseling, the root had been addressed. Now I had to become a therapist because I wanted people to experience the same freedom I had found. So I always say I became a therapist by accident. It was time to rebuild, but I had no understanding of the context of trauma. See, trauma is most impacting because we're made for connection. And trauma causes disconnection from ourselves, our ability to experience the love of the Lord and from each other. I ended up trying to fill the emptiness with a same-sex relationship, the shame of which, combined with the clerical and convent abuse, kept me away from the church for several years. During those years, I was tempted to doubt Christianity but I could never discount that profound experience the Lord had given me on the locker room floor in an old gym in Steubenville in the three days that followed. It may be on a shadow of a doubt that I could not have conjured up that experience because I can assure you, if that was possible, I would never again do anything other than recreate that experience. The Lord had allowed such an amazing grace in my life, not because I was somehow worthy or earned it, but because in his infinite mercy and wisdom, he knew how far I'd fall and how broken I was. I believe, believe he gave me that experience of profound, unearned grace to sear into me a knowledge of his existence and lordship that I could not deny. Still in my heart of hearts, I questioned and feared if I would fall back into another same-sex relationship. As the Lord began to show me professionally in a very theoretical way, the importance of healthy connection and what it is, he simultaneously allowed the circumstances of my life to be such that I was stripped almost entirely of supportive human connection. It was a very painful time on one level, but at the very same time, he relayed the foundation of connection to himself. I had no one left to turn to. I felt deeply rejected, betrayed, devalued, and lied about. And at the same time, he brought me to know that by him, the God of all creation, I am completely chosen for union with himself, known intimately, precious, and protected. That affected such a radical shift within me. There's a beautiful quote from St. Catherine of Genoa, my deepest me is God. That's what he had woven into my heart, and by doing so, I felt connected to myself in a way I didn't know was lacking and never could have imagined was possible. When that happened, it was like any doubt or fear I would end up in a same-sex relationship again was gone. It was like the whole program was just deleted. As a part of my past that's so far in the rearview mirror that I tend to forget about it, I realized that relationship was rooted in the lack of connection I had with myself. I didn't know how to connect to me, and the closest way to attempt that was in a relationship with someone most like me, someone of the same gender. I ended up reaching out to a Catholic colleague by text for something having to do with work. She lives in a different state, and she was sharing what she was doing, and she mentioned that she hosts a Catholic therapist's prayer breakfast once a month and that they start with mass. I read that text and was immediately jealous in reading that they had mass. I was confused by my own response because I could go to mass if I wanted to. I read that text so many times over the next few days. The Lord was revealing through it the desires of my own heart. I made a phone call to Chris Armshaw, she was one of my former household sisters who had been my first roommate at Franciscan. I ranted at her for a couple of hours about the abuse I'd experienced in the church and from some Catholics when they found out about the same-sex relationship I'd been in. She didn't once try to talk me out of my pain or anger. She patiently listened, validated my feelings, and expressed compassion for what I'd gone through. A couple of days later, I was in my office doing some writing 
and I felt an overwhelming sense of God's presence. My heart felt like it was going to burst. It felt like, like a little sandwich bag, and God was pouring like two tons of sand into it. I thought, someone's got to be praying for me. It has to be Chris. She's the only one who knows what's going on with me. So I shot her a text. Hey, Chris, random question. Are you praying for me? She texts back, yeah, just finished the rosary for you. The sense of God's presence continued to get even stronger, and I couldn't focus on work. So I went home. I was thinking, this all started with that text about Mass. God seems to feel pretty strongly about Mass. I remember going to bed that night. My head was swirling. How would I make my way back to the church? I didn't know what to do with it all or how to begin to pray. I simply prayed one Hail Mary. It was all I had, and I went to bed. The next morning, I woke up and had an appointment to get my hair done. As I drove to the appointment, I thought, I need to find confession somewhere if God wants me to start going to Mass again. I sat in the chair with color in my hair. I remembered that there, was, there were always confessions at 11 a.m. at the Shrine of the Conversion of St. Paul on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> I, and I do not remember details. I'm much more a big-picture person, so that's crazy. I had only been there once or twice before, never lived in Cleveland. I put the address into my phone and calculated that if I drove directly from the salon, as soon as I was finished, I ought to make it in time. When I walked into the church, which has perpetual adoration, the Blessed Sacrament was exposed and the confessional door was open. I felt like a stranger in a place that had once been familiar. I went into confession. God bless that poor little priest in my confession. <laughs> As I stepped out of the confessional, I was home. I realized that it was the eve of the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. I was home through the graces of the rosary. My friend prayed for me and won the one Hail Mary I could muster. I asked the Lord what I was supposed to do. How was I supposed to handle it if I returned and experienced more pain from those in the church? And immediately, he put on my heart... Isaiah, again, this is the first part of that same scripture I shared with you before from Isaiah 53.10. This is the first half of the sentence. The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. <laughs> well, that's not a sweet and consoling scripture and much, much more a message of buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> it affected me deeply. One of, one of my favorite scriptures is from the book of the prophet Baruch. It's Baruch 4.4. And we hear that reading um, at the Easter Vigil Mass when they do all seven readings. That's the only time, to my knowledge, that we actually hear it. But it always pierces my heart. That scripture says, Blessed are we, O Israel, for what pleases the Lord is known to us. And it, it, just, it always pierces my heart because I just always think, what if we didn't? Like, what if he was so distant and so unknowable? that we didn't know what pleased him. So when the Lord gave me the scripture, the Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity, that's the place it hit in my heart. It was a gut check. Did it matter? Did it matter what it was that was to happen as long as it pleased the Lord? No, it didn't, and it doesn't. So not to say that I suffer well at all, <laughs> But the bottom line is that I just want to please the Lord, and I know he's all good, all wise, and is for me. So if he allows me to be crushed, it is for my good, and because it is far better than anything I can ask or imagine. Not long after, I experienced some very painful things from people in the church who had known about my past. It cut me to the heart, and I felt like I was flailing. I didn't know what to do with that much hurt. Then that scripture came to mind. And I was in my kitchen. I was literally like unloading the dishwasher. I, was, I felt like somebody was pouring like acid on my soul. It was just so much pain. And that scripture came back, and I just started chanting it over and over as I was emptying my dishwasher. And after about 20 minutes, perfect peace returned. 
The Lord was showing me that everything is an occasion for intimacy with him. If we experience it with him and stay grounded in the fact that he is with us in it. He was teaching me about atonement, which I've heard broken down as at one meant. Being at one with the Lord, knowing he's one with us, even in the darkest hour, even when no one else is. That doesn't mean that pain doesn't hurt anymore or there's no suffering, but he's taught me some ways to stay firm in the knowledge that he is with me and that has made a world of difference. One of these ways is the image of a thurible, the incensor at mass. I'm a very visual person and he gave gave me the image of putting sufferings in difficult situations in the thurible as though it is incense being offered up to him. That really works for me. It's easier than the typical kind of offer it up. That's like that's way too abstract for my little brain. I never really quite knew, knew what to do with that. However, when I can picture myself offering whatever suffering like incense before his throne, it suddenly puts me in the right place before him with him on the throne and offering to him whatever suffering it might be as a small gift and acknowledgement of his wisdom and glory. Our Blessed Mother has taught me to pray a Hail Mary as people or circumstances who have hurt me come to mind as a way of releasing the situation and entrusting it over to her. Try it sometime. It's amazing. Sometimes there's a whole parade of people in circumstances. It almost feels like they need to be taking number like at a deli, right? Because I can barely finish praying with this one before somebody else is moving along the spiritual conveyor belt. But if I just let it move along and not stopping to examine it or push on the owie, then there's this sense of freedom. And when it comes back, if it comes back in the future, there's like far less intensity about it. Finally, I'd shared with you the beautiful quote from St. Catherine of Genoa, my deepest me is God. So I had decided I should know something more about this lady than just this one quote, right? So I ordered a book. Um, It's either a biography or an autobiography about her, but that was not what came in the mail. I think it was, you know, the Holy Spirit and his mailing list. I guess he gets in there with Amazon orders, too, or whatever. So what arrived was the Lord's revelation to St. Catherine of Genoa about purgatory. So this is Margaret's Cliff's notes on Catherine of Genoa. So she basically explains that everything is from the fire of God's love. Everything. Sometimes we experience that as consolation in this life and we feel his love. And sometimes we experience the fire of his love as purification in this life. And after we die, we experience the fire of his love continuing to purify us if if we're going to purgatory. The idea that whatever we are going through is from the fire of his love speaks to my heart. It makes perfect sense, and it's consistent with who he is, right? Like, so you're in the middle of a situation, and you don't suddenly, like, keeps me from abandoning that knowledge of who he is. And um, so it grounds me in the truth that he's still the same loving, good, wise God who was for me any time I experienced his closeness. So actually, so I ordered on Etsy, I ordered this little, had this little bracelet made that says a one fire. So I, I always wear this because I can stand up here and share this and walk out into the parking lot and stub my toe and forget that God is good and for me, right? So I need constant reminders. He is with us and he doesn't leave us orphans. He is good and he is for us. He will work all things for our good, even if understanding what that good is takes a lot longer than we prefer. He is God, all good, all powerful, all loving, all wise. He is for us, for me, and for you, personally and intimately, no matter what we've done. You know, when when the Lord gave me that profound experience of himself in the locker room, at, in an old gym, he already knew that I was going to fall like into a same-sex relationship and away from the church. right? Because he's omniscient. He's outside of time. So he's there for us no matter what, what we've done. He calls us to put areas of our lives we've taken into our own hands back 
into his hands and under his jurisdiction because he wants far more for us than we're willing to settle for. So I want to conclude with these verses from Psalm 118. I called to the Lord in my distress. He answered and freed me. The Lord is at my side. I do not fear. What can man do against me? The Lord is at my side as my helper. I shall look down on my foes. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. I was hard-pressed and was falling, but the Lord came to help me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my savior. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the just. The Lord's right hand triumphed. His right hand raised me. The Lord's right hand has triumphed. I shall not die, I shall live and recount his deeds. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his love endures forever. So I want to just lead us in a, a prayer of commitment or recommitment for wherever. I'm sure some of us have done this how many times, but he always has more because he's infinite. So isn't that good news? So, so I invite you to, I'll, I'll break it up so you can re repeat after me. You can do that out loud. If you're not comfortable with that, you can do it in your heart because he hears it all. So. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Repent for the times that I've chosen my fear over your love. I choose you again this day. I ask you to draw me ever more deeply into your heart. I give you permission to take my heart and make it like yours. I ask you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to be stirred up within me. That I might be a light to the nations. And proclaim your salvation to the ends of the earth. pray all this in Jesus' name. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for today's show. Please subscribe and share and check us out on wholenessandholiness.com. Follow and like us on social media. And to learn more about Sacred Heart Healing Ministries, please go to sacredhearthealingministries.com.